Welcome back to the Neuroaffirming Parent Podcast. It's the show where we explore the world of neurodiversity and neurodiversity affirming parenting while talking to people with wonderful lived and learned experiences within the concept of neurodiversity. So today I want to welcome you to a wonderful guest. We have talked on Instagram and we have gotten to know each other, but I want you to know her. She is a best-selling children's author, an educator, a trainer, an ECE coach, a neurodiversity advocate, a keynote speaker, a neurodivergent adult, a wife, and a mom of two inquisitive children. And she just recently had her third little baby, so that's a brand new bundle of joy. You may have already purchased one of her books. The first one is I'm Just a Kid. It's a social-emotional book about self-regulation. And her newest book is The Beauty of Us All, Celebrating the Diversity of the World. Or you might follow her like I do on Instagram. She is Shondell Morris of Diversity of Minds. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. I really appreciate being on here with you guys today. You are so welcome. I I feel so privileged to have you on my platform that my listeners get to listen to you because I am in awe of people who can write books and channel all their knowledge and information into you know even just an ebook or paperback or a hardback like that is hard but tell us what got you to that point oh so as my children were tiny I would literally tell them stories every single night like every night and even when I was tired and they started to tell me mommy just make up a story from your head Oh, and because they were like, we have tons of books in our library, um, mm-hmm. but because we read every single night, they were like through the big the books really quickly. Um, so I started to make up stories from my head, which wasn't really hard because growing up with me and my sisters, we were very silly and very imaginative, and we would kind of make up stories. So as as I made stories, um, my kids would be like, "Oh, you know, you should record that." Right. And my yeah. husband would be like, you know what? You, you're you always making up stories. Why don't you just write stories? And I never imagined that I would do that. Um, That, that would be like a career or profession. Um, but I decided to do it. And the, the first story that I wrote was called I'm Just a Kid. And the reason why I wrote that story was because my son at that time was in the process of being evaluated. And mm. um, he was having a very hard time transitioning during the back to school COVID time, right? When everybody, when every the world opened up again. Yes. And um, he was having just a lot of difficulty with the changes, you know, school being half day, mm. half day in school, then hybrid at home, you know, online at home. And uh, he was really, really struggling with all the different changes that was happening. Um, I I had always known my kiddo to be a quirky kid, right? Yeah. And so I I knew that he wasn't exactly the same as other children and there was something um, unique about him, but I I couldn't understand what what made him different, why, why he was so different. And so I, when he was about one, I got him evaluated. I realized that 
because I'm an educator, I know the different milestones. Mm. And so I realized that there were certain things that he was not doing on time. And um, he cried a lot too. When they got, when I got him evaluated, it was like, nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong, quote unquote mm. wrong with him. Yeah. He's a cute kid. Look at his smile. Um, He doesn't need any services. He doesn't qualify for services. Okay, fine. But as he got a little bit older, I still started to see, you know, he doesn't play with other children. Um, You know, everything's parallel play. Um, I just was, it was able, it was easy for me to see that he wasn't doing this thing the typical way. Yeah. And so I got him evaluated again um, when he was four. And when they went to check on him, it was like, he is such a smart kid. Wow. Mm-hmm. He knows all of, of the dinosaur names. Like, I had never heard of this dinosaur before. He's so bright. He's so cute. He's so handsome. No, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything. And my heart was would break every time because I'm like, I know that he's he's just my kid. He's just mm-hmm. a kid. Um, But I know that there are certain things that he needs some more support with. And I know that, you know, he's not doing things um, the way I would see them with other children his age. And so um, in kindergarten, it wasn't until he was in kindergarten, he was having these challenges that this amazing psychologist um, was able to see what I was seeing. Her son had very similar traits. He was all grown up. But her son had very similar traits and she was afraid to ask me. She says, has anybody ever told you that your son may be autistic? She was definitely afraid, but I literally almost cried tears of joy, actually, because I felt as if, wow, somebody sees what I'm seeing. Like, I'm not crazy. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Somebody, yeah. (laughs) I'm like, uh, somebody sees it and... uh, you know, he needs support. There's no reason why he should be, you know, having such challenges if there's support out there. And so as I as I watched him struggle with the with these with the transitions and different things, and I didn't know how to help him. Even I was a, I was an educator and you know, I've I've worked with um children who were autistic, but I never imagined that my son could be autistic because I never saw someone with his type of traits who were Mm -hmm. autistic. And I realized that there was a lot that I needed to learn. So as I, as I watched him and as I went through my big emotions of dealing with, you know, all of these changes and not understanding autism, I didn't know even the word neurodiversity existed. I didn't know anything about those things. (laughs) And um, luckily we're learning about it now, but, um, I was having these big emotions for myself because I had all these things, these um, negative biases, these these thoughts, these um, labels and all all of the different things that everybody would say about children who were different, special needs or whatever the case may be. I had those thoughts and and those words and those voices in my mind. And I didn't want to get him evaluated. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to think. I just didn't want to see my son struggling and then I couldn't help him because simply I didn't understand him. And so I decided that everybody's asking me to, my children are asking me to write stories and my husband's asking me to write stories. What if I wrote a story about this particular thing where um, a child may be having a meltdown or a child may be having a hard time and how a parent can actually help that child. 
And so that's the reason why I wrote the book called I'm Just a Kid, because I said, I'm not the only parent that is going through this at this time. Yeah. Who's struggling, who doesn't understand, like, what do I do? Like, is this a negative thing or is this a normal thing? Or like, how should I, how should I react to this type of um, behavior or what should I do? Like there's all these different types of questions. They didn't have any type of words um, that they could use to be able to explain how they were feeling or just explain the whole situation. So I wrote the book, I'm Just a Kid, so that parents can see um, how regulation is different for Mm -hmm. every single person like what works for one child might not work for another child and also teaching about um you know self-acceptance self-awareness um self-reflection understanding yourself understanding your child what works for them and then also your role as a parent like how can you help your child to regulate you know like just simply the word co-regulation I had yes, never heard that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I loved talking to you the other day on the phone because we do have a lot of similarities with our children's ages, kind of like how we transitioned. Cause like, yeah, the pandemic was huge. And I think that was mm. like a stir point because I mean, there was a lot of people having children exhibiting behaviors that they never seen before and you know you're googling and there's no parenting books to help you there's nothing like even if for me in my childhood like when I look back I was like what's something in me that I could relate to but when you get to a certain age it's hard to remember all those certain things and if your parents are older and you ask them most of the time they're like my mom they're like I don't remember (laughs) no no I just got finished telling my mother-in-law I don't remember the days when I used to change his diaper. Like, I know I changed his diaper, but like, right. I don't remember. Like, I don't remember. <laughs> and so, so I get that's, it. yes. And I'm so glad that I love your Instagram account. And I'm so glad that we sync up on this idea of inclusion. And we talk about not just, you know, neurodiversity in a vacuum. We include being marginalized ourselves and that lived experience mm-hmm. and obviously your education experience. And I feel like people don't value parenting because it's so complex. And what you're talking about, I definitely want to talk about more because when I try to make a post on my page, it's hard for me to kind of sum it up in a nice way or a simple way because it's difficult and it's individual. And I don't want to be that account to be like, oh, well, you know, this is a quick fix or, you know, this is a perfect self-regulation or co-regulation strategy. Mm -hmm. And that's why in this podcast, I try to emphasize that, you know, what works for me, what works for you, it may work for other people. We hope it works for other people, but it's just trial and error. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so that's, I mean, just, just like what you're saying in, in the book, I'm just a kid. Yeah. It shows different strategies. The mom gives him strategies of things that has worked for him in the past. And then in the end, he ends up using a completely different strategy where he actually <laughs> wraps himself in a blanket and it helps him at that time. So, I mean, it, this is really just to show parents and educators as well. Like, you know, you have a bunch of kids in your class and may, you may want to tell them to breathe you know, three times. And at that mm-hmm. moment, that child is like, I just want to sit in the corner and just be by myself for a second. 
you know? Yes. So just understanding that, like, don't get frustrated because your strategy isn't working. Yes. <laughs> understand well, that they're... Uh-huh. Yeah. And another thing is, like, I, I almost despise how popular neurodiversity is getting sometimes because mm-hmm. it gets confusing. And I'm sure yeah. when people see my name, neuroaffirming, just like you said, implicit bias, yeah, they're going to assume my neurotype. They're going to assume my family. They're going to assume the organizations we support. And I have to do a lot of emotional labor to kind of educate others. And that's exhausting. But for me, I'm like, it's not that hard, y'all. It's just listening. It's just <laughs> yeah, yeah, trusting your child and that authentic relationship that you build and sadly it's more about breaking down these neurotypical centric worldviews of oh your child's trying to manipulate you or oh you have to do this Mm -hmm. or oh you know kids are supposed to be you know quiet and seen not heard and absolutely I for me I am so glad that you feel empowered enough to write a book because there's a lot of times in my journey where I'm just like, oh, I could delete all this and not talk to anybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. Absolutely. It's so, it's so easy to get discouraged by, you know, what, so maybe how you were raised. Yes. Even, even grandparents having grandparents around and they see that you raise your children a little differently, um, understanding. And they verbally um, say, that's not how I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah. Or, or they give you a look and say, you need to be a little more stern. <laughs> you know, you get those and it's hard because it worked, you know, the way that they raised you, it worked for you, but it might not work particularly for your child's neural type or specifically for that particular child. Yes. Um, so yeah, I get it. When I want to ask you, ha- has neurodiversity changed kind of how you view your own family and kind of other people? Cause and I'll give an example is I used to have a lot of resentment towards my mom. And now that I know more about neurodiversity and ADHD and dyslexia, I have a lot more empathy because I don't really look at her with a deficit model anymore. I look at her with gratitude that she was able to raise me with the tools that she was given. I I mean, I think it does change my parenting in the sense that um, I'm a little more empathetic with my children with and sometimes that annoys people, honestly, because some yes, people are just like, yes. just like, this is how it is very militant, you know, like, but I'm, I think I'm a little more empathetic where I'm like giving extra time for certain things or giving warnings before a transition or um, just understanding a meltdown or the, the cause or looking for triggers. Um, <clears throat> I think it affects it in that way. Also, me and myself, I was not. Um, officially diagnosed as ADHD, but my daughter is, has my daughter has ADHD, and many times when I look at the things that her traits, I realize, oh my goodness, wow, this is yes. Why do we get like- automatic diagnoses? <laughs> it's hereditary. <laughs> exactly. I'm like I I I have been struggling with this, and I didn't realize how I didn't realize just how challenging it was for me until. I noticed how reliant I am on technology 
and like yes. Alexa. I use Alexa yes. a lot to remind me of everything. Google is everything. my best friend. Yeah. <laughs> and I said uh, one time my um the the plug came out for the um for the for the router and I had to re I had to redo all of my Alexas, right? Yes. And I realized I'm I'm like every minute Alexa remind me of this Alexa. Oh man, she's plugged out. Oh, I got to redo it. Oh. And I realized how reliant I was on those prompts my list and all these different things that I really, I have been creating these strategies for myself all of this time. And all these strategies actually work for my daughter who has ADHD. And the more and more I started to learn about her and her ADHD, the more and more I started to see in me. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. Are you, are you serious? So many times when I'm dealing with my children, you know, I, I explain to them, so these are, yeah, you guys have strengths and, and mm. I have strengths, but we also have challenges. Like one of your challenges is such and such and such. One of mommy's challenges is such and such and such. Yes. So them understanding like I am mommy, but I am not perfect. And I also have challenges. And yeah, maybe I may have a different neurotype than I thought all of this time, but let's look at each other and see, okay, this is what we need assistance with, or this is what we what kind of support we need. And be able to be open to say, okay, let me slow down. Mommy yes. forgot to do such and such. That's okay. We all forget things sometimes. And let's let's figure out how to help each other, you know? So I think that's how it affects my, my challenge, my parenting, where we are a little more empathetic towards each other, where my kids are empathetic towards, towards each other. And they're also empathetic towards me as mommy, yes. who I cannot remember all 20 things at the same time sometimes, which is, that's a mommy thing anyway, right? Whether you're neurotypical or neurodivergent. Um, But I really think it helped us to be empathetic. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and I've talked about this before is that it really broke me in an IEP meeting when I had adults that were supposed to be highly educated, you know, multiple degrees, and they were telling me no for certain visual aids and accommodations for my daughter who was four years old at the time and it was simply like a sound chart or a hundred chart for her counting and we left the IEP meeting and I go to text my husband and I look at my phone and what is on my phone a keyboard and it has letters and numbers and autocorrect and I'm like I have these accommodations And I don't ask for them. I don't have to go into a meeting with Google or Android or my phone service provider to get these things added to my phone. I'm, Mm -hmm. as an adult, given the autonomy to, because I don't use the regular keyboard. I download the Google keyboard. I change the colors. I customize Mm -hmm. it. And it memorizes my own vocabulary and adjusts Mm -hmm. its dictionary for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, it doesn't feel right to deny a service to a child that or or even saying they're like, Oh, you need this specific piece of paper that says you're diagnosed when a child's in front of you asking for help. Correct. Absolutely. Ah, So my daughter, she's nine. Um, Some people get on me at the fact that I allowed her to have a cell phone now. Um, And the reason why I allowed her to have a cell phone is because... (laughs) (laughs) So the reason why I allowed her to have a cell phone is because she's the only one going to her new school. But I I make sure that I put a lot of parental restrictions on it, right? So Mm -hmm. she can't do like the whole YouTube and TikTok and all that stuff. But I really wanted her... Like she... um, 
we she suspected to have dyslexia, right? So mm-hmm. I really wanted her to be able to send like send text messages to me every now and then. So it yes. helps her to be able yeah. to, to read my messages, even though she doesn't like to to read as much as you know other kids her age. She she's able to read my text messages. She's able to type them out, and she's mm-hmm. also able to see the the auto the thing you know the words on the top. So yeah, you can see those. So she's remembering how to spell and how words are are spelled based off of that. And I'm like, why, why do we need to take these away from from our children when it's readily avail- available for them? It's like telling people, yes, you're not allowed. To, I mean, even Google, if you want to, if you want to do some multiplication on some type of math. Everything Google teaches Google, you. You don't have to type it in. You don't even need a calculator. You just tell it. Hey, give me the answer for it. You know, um, at this time of age that we're living in, there's so many resources for our kids. Yeah. Yes, why do we want to limit that? No. Yes. We do want them to know how to read. Yes. It's important for them to know how to read. Well, let me it tell you this. It was, it was eye opening for me because I didn't know about dyslexia and I only knew from my upbringing about phonics. Right. We've talked about this. Um, so when I found like the Khan Academy kids app for our tablets, for our kids, I was just like, oh, cool. Like an educational game. Right. No, my daughter was learning phonemic awareness and I didn't realize what it was. And she taught herself how to spell her name on the keyboard. And so we went to school and they were doing balanced literacy. And I said, Hey, my daughter wants to learn how to read, but she's having difficulties. Like, what can we do? And I was getting told, Oh, well, she's not ready yet. I don't think she's mature. And really it was just the wait to fail model because they didn't have yeah. any screeners before third grade. So their job was to delay, deny and deny services, even though they weren't going to say that explicitly. Um, but it was just a disservice to my daughter because she had the building blocks. She had the tools, you know, they say read to your kid, you know, all these things that isn't really based by neuroscience, but she was willing to read despite being dyslexic and not even identified. Mm-hmm. And here we had a school where our tax money was going to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're supposed to have teachers that have that ability to teach kids how to read. And they were telling my daughter no. And I just couldn't, I, yeah. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, educators, when... Okay, so when they go to school, they're really just learning how to teach to the typical brain, right? Yes. Um, and it's oftentimes the the courses that you have, you really only get like one course that really kind of hints on neurodiversity. It talks about disabilities. You get, you know, mm. courses about disabilities, but kind not stay within the law, but <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You know, I remember learning about, you know, what do you do when you have a child who has who has a learning um, a hearing aid or can't see that well or um, has a physical disability. I remember learning about that, but they, we didn't really delve too much in um, just learning differences. I don't want to say learning disabilities, but learning differences. Um, well, and you know why? I can tell you. Or, well, they used to. And they called it learning styles, but it was taught the wrong way because the truth is you can't expect a teacher to make like 20 different lesson plans for each kid, which essentially is like an IEP for each kid and teach individually that way. 
And so they finally said, well, yeah, we debunked learning styles, but they never went into neurodiversity and admitted that, yeah, everybody has a different brain, but when you are teaching, you are building neurobiological skills that are not there. So mm-hmm. you don't need a learning style when you're, the child is the one developing that skill themselves. And, you know, as kids, we don't know, oh, this is my frontal lobe. Oh, this is my cortex. <laughs> like, you don't know. Yeah. But neuroscientists thankfully do. And that's why we have structured literacy and explicit instruction because it's not a one size fits all. It's just saying that when you teach to every strength and you acknowledge every challenge, you don't leave anybody to fail. You don't leave anybody mm-hmm. out. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I love that. And I know that it's 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 going to be challenging to really get to where we want to be. You know, but it's on purpose. That's what. Edu- yes, like it's on purpose <laughs> because, just like you said, like these some of these colleges will accept neurodiversity and other colleges will probably need state funding to encourage them to accept Mm -hmm. neurodiversity. And we're seeing that now with Columbia and the teacher's college because the hand has been forced thanks to dyslexic parents that are saying, Hey, no, you can't do balanced literacy anymore. Yeah. It was probably cheaper and you were making Buku's money, but you can't do that no more. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm like, I don't understand why they're using these reading curriculums that's actually not teaching all of the students. Like, I'm saying, I, I like, these teachers it. need a recall. <laughs> you need refunds. Like, you wouldn't have no student loans. <laughs> yeah, please. And these teachers are working so hard. They're working yes. so hard with what they are given. The problem is what they're given is not really helping all of... I I went to my daughter's, my daughter's school and... They're very, very proud of the reading curriculum that they have. They were like showing it off. They're showing all the books. And and my my husband was looking in them. He was very impressed. The only thing in my head was, I'm looking at it because I'm an educator. I've seen many curriculum books, you know? Yep. It looks pretty and it comes with a lot of stuff. Um, The only thing in my head was, is this inclusive for dyslexia, mm. this children? Like... And I'm like looking at it and I'm like, do I ask this question? Because the teacher might not know. Yes, you ask the she's question. Using... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, she's using what she's given and she's doing her best and she's working hard, but this is what she's given, you know? And it's it's so tough. It's it's tough for educators because it's like, the, who's the parents? The parents going to go to the teachers and say, you're not teaching my child correctly, but it's not, that's not the case. They're, they're teaching based off of what they're, what they have. Yeah. And so- we really need a total recall of just the whole education system. And it's not going to be, you know, an overnight change because there's a lot of different things that need to be, um, you know, thought of when you think about it. Like if you're going to include all children, if you're going to include all neurotypes, what about a child who is um, developmentally or intellectually, I should say, disabled? What if they're if they're not learning on a fourth grade reading level? What if they're actually on um, first grade in terms of math and in science? Like, how are we going to include everybody? So I know those are questions that people have, mm-hmm. and so I don't want to be I don't want to be so naive to say, well, neurodiversity, and we're going to include everybody in one class. Like, I understand the challenges that need to be overcome first so yes 
this that's why I say this is not going to be like an overnight thing, but this is something that we have to start. We have to start somewhere. Yes. I say there's never you never you're never gonna see a ripple in the water until somebody throws a pebble in it, right? Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's good. No, and you bring up a good conversation because I see online there's a lot of confusion and my difficulty isn't necessarily educating people on what inclusion is. It's kind of breaking that idea of what they thought inclusion is. And an example is my daughter's school thought they were fully inclusive with a pullout program. So they expected her to get pulled out and get what they considered a dyslexia intervention And then put back into a classroom where she would have to be sitting with 60 minutes, guided reading with leveled readers. And they did not understand how harmful the leveled readers were or the idea of guided reading. So Mm -hmm. how do you feel about inclusion today? Um, well, I feel that I feel as if we need to understand each child and the way that they learn and then understanding that there's certain resources, there's certain things, strategies um, that can be used for that particular child. It's extremely individual. However, I don't think it's only individual to those who have IEPs. No, you're right. And you, it's funny is a lot (laughs) of people don't realize there are universal neurodiversity screeners available they're in other countries. Um, and that's my problem is, is like, there's a lot of good legislation right now for dyslexia screeners, but that leaves out dyscalculia, dyspraxia, dysgraphia, all these other things that are, we yeah. know exist in that child. So it's like, what is the benefit of deeming a child dyslexic and then ignoring all these other strengths and challenges at the same time? And I don't think the answer is everybody have an IEP, I think the answer is educate the teachers. I think we need to stop funding admin and all these, like, I hate to say don't fund the specialists. I mean, yeah, we're still going to need levels and tiers of intervention if, you know, the general tier doesn't work, but our focus should be general education. If we don't have a strong general education foundation, you can't supplement with a phonics patch. You can't supplement with a behavior patch Or, you know, a social emotional, oh, well, you get 10 minutes of that. So that checks off the list and you should be good. No, like, and my, my problem is I probably do know too much because I've downloaded free assessments. I know exactly the phonics level that my kids are on. I know their number sense awareness. And just like you're saying, like, yeah, we have that problem right now where a school can tell you hey, your kid's on grade level. And, or they'll say, hey, your kids are getting A's and B's, but they're not on grade level. And the truth is, depending on the assessment or the publishing company they have, they don't know what they're talking about. And there's a lot of, in my local community, like they claim that they have a 91% graduation score. But if you go on the website, they hide that any child with IEP, their actual graduation rate is like 60%. Which, tell me this, if I put you in an IEP meeting and we say, okay, your kid in general education has a 91% chance of graduating, but if we give them an IEP, they only have a 60% chance of graduating, 
what do you choose? Of course, you don't choose that. <laughs> so th that's a, that's the problem. So yes. a special education classroom automatically gives you a stigma, yes. right? So it stigmatizes you automatically. Your your confidence, um, just the way other children look at you, it's just different, right? Than if you're in a general. Yeah, education it's ignorant to think that if you're getting pulled out, that you can practice inclusion. And the problem is, oh well, the kids should be happy when they come in. No, you're ignoring the fact that that child just missed time out of class with their peers, with kids their age, and they're getting instruction that is supposed to be one-on-one, -on -one, is supposed to be great, but is it evidence-based? You don't know. And just because they're getting intervention doesn't mean that it's the best thing for them. And yeah. I forget the name, but it was on Facebook. There was a wonderful person that just posted... And I was like, I wish I thought of that. But he said, like, you can't expect a child to have good self-esteem if they're constantly in remedial classes or constantly being held back and being told you haven't learned this skill. Exactly. Yeah. You know, this that makes me think about my son. He's only eight years old. Um, and he, you know, he has a hard time with transitions and any type of change to his schedule. And this, like the second week of school, and he told, at the end of the day, I asked him how his day was. It was like the first day that he had an actual good day or he felt like oh, he had a good day, right? Good. And so he felt like he had a good day, but he didn't look like he had a good day. His face expressions. Oh, mm. well, what happened? He says, well, I, I did have a good day, but I just don't like it that they pull me out of my classroom when mm. I'm doing work. I don't know if it affects his self-esteem or if it's just, you know, the the transition he doesn't like. But he was actually, he actually reached out and asked me if I could speak to the school psych to let her know, this is how I'm feeling. I well, that's a good question him. because there are some schools that allow interventions within the general education classroom. And mm -hmm. not a lot of people know that. Not a lot of parents know how to ask and I mean, the schools do manipulate it that way, because if you don't know, how do you know what to ask for? I think it's just maybe there's too many kids to be able to say they probably want to have like a, a group of children in one in one room doing speech or doing whatever the case may be. So I know it's it's hard right now. We are facing um is this low staff everywhere, right? Yes. Teachers are leaving the classrooms and well, my state, specialists this, are leaving. They're just employing uh, teachers virtually all over. So literally they're rolling in a, like a smart board or a laptop and having a teacher from some other state teach a class and consider that fate. And I'm like, <laughs> or free appropriate yeah. public education. And I'm like, what is this coming to? <laughs> no, might as well have robots. Yes. <laughs> and let me not say it too loud because they might. <laughs> well, uh, you know what? Sadly, I probably would trust chat GPT to make a better curriculum. Uh, just because, you know, when you, you know, that's the truth in software is if you program something you can either add bias or you can explicitly program it without bias and unfortunately with teachers you can't always do that because you can't control their upbringing you can't control the college they went to you can't control the parents they had you can't control any little you know microaggression they experienced in life that may have them look at a white child differently or a hispanic child differently 
And yeah, it's hard, which I love Cox campus. Cause I took the implicit bias training. They teach you how to kind of separate that from yourself and analyze it objectively to understand that yes, everybody's going to have a bias. That is a part of being human. It's a part of pattern recognition. You can't immediately separate you, yourself from bias, but you can mm-hmm. learn to acknowledge it and be aware of it and stop that bias from you connecting with another human. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why I, that's the reason why I wrote the beauty of us all. Just, we do have our differences and uh, instead of looking at our differences with bias in a negative, you know, um, seeing those differences and, and appreciating the differences, seeing the, seeing the beauty in those, in, in the differences around us, in the children around us, in our faces, in our neurotypes, in, in our abilities, our shapes and our sizes. Um, we need to exactly stop seeing it with to. the deficit model. Exactly. And I wouldn't even say that you need to be like totally gentle or totally strength-based, but there's no harm in seeing it as neutral. That differences yeah. are just differences. Yes. And you know, some people like people say, I don't see color when they're talking about mm, people. I, my mother. Why? <laughs> why? Why don't you see color? It's beautiful. Like we literally have different colors. Like if you look in my family, just in my little family, I have, I have a family of five. It's me, my husband and my three children. If you look at our family, I can't even say we're all African-American. My husband is from the islands. Um, if you look at my family, we're all different complexions. Like every single one of us are different complexions. Well, but we're all considered black, but yes, none of us are the same complexion at all. Oh, can I and, give you an analogy? I love uh-huh. that because I feel like neurodivergent is the equivalent of black because you say mm. one word and people recognize what you're talking about. Mm. Where African-American is kind of like neurotypes because if I say dyslexia, I don't identify necessarily with that word, but I know I say that word. So you understand what I'm talking about. Just like I have Mm -hmm. to say I'm African-American. Do I identify with that? Not really because Mm -hmm. my parents didn't raise me with like any culture. They were very boring and (laughs) (laughs) and I mean, they're not even fully like American. They would identify as New Yorkers. And <laughs> so I've, and that's like another subtype and another cultural term that you have to explain to people. So how do you feel about that? Where we could equivalent black and neurodivergent and a neurotype with African-American. I think that's, I mean, I think that's amazing. I didn't, I never would have thought about that. And it's funny because I'm the type of person I think in images and that's the reason why I decided, you know, I'm a, I'm an author. Um, but Yes, it's true because you have you have the African you have African Americans you have just plain Africans and you have um you know people from the the West Indies it's just, just oh my goodness in the islands and then yeah. yes and then you even have like the subgroup of you know Polynesians also have black people too then we have that yeah. rare uh, subgroup where it was Chinese Africans that are forgotten and you know what i'm saying and like for me as a mixed and person he, and growing up growing up people always thought that i was from honduras oh i don't i don't know if it was the texture of my hair or what but and then the complexion of my skin but everyone 
thought that I was from Honduras for some reason. And I was like, how? And then I realized when I looked it up, okay, now I see it. But yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, the Afro-Latino community is so diverse and so complex. And it's funny to me because when you talk about Brazil, what do people think? Oh, they're beautiful people. And for me growing up, I was like, so why don't you see everybody as beautiful when Mm -hmm. you shouldn't be scared of a melting pot? You shouldn't fear diversity. You and I love how like in a lot of mixed uh, like kids spaces, they'll say monoracial for white or black people. And Mm. it's funny because if I probably said that to my mom or dad, they'd probably take it as a slight, but then I found out with my dad's history that I'm not the first mixed person in our family. He's like three, fourth, fifth generation mixed. And I found out through my DNA, like we're connected to like this rare, um, Kitosin fireworks, uh, enslaved people that came over from Africa for their iron work and they're still doing anthropology on it but it's a whole group of people that does not fit the mold like when you talk about slavery in America you sadly don't know what you're talking about there's so many minority and different family stories and even the story I was told in school of like oh my last name for my dad because he's black probably came from a plantation owner that's not true. I did the history and for whatever reason, his great grandfather was adopted by a colored civil war veteran that Hmm. I don't even know if maybe that was his real son and they couldn't adopt him until after slavery, but that was my maiden name. And nobody told me this. And my dad's family probably didn't pass down that information. They couldn't be proud of it. But you're robbed of your family history of when you don't celebrate that diversity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, diversity is so important. And it's, it's created, it's, you're meant to be diverse. We all are meant to be diverse, but it's a shame that it's a shame that we are, you know, taught in the beginning, like right now we're trying to unlearn um, all of the negative things that, we've learned when it comes to diversity. Right. Like just, just if this I year, count, oh my goodness. Like there's so many things that I learned more on Google and Wikipedia that school did not teach me. So when I have a lot of conflicts when people are like, well, support public school. And I'm like, y'all, my public school education was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's places um, outside of the U.S. that the education system is just much better than over here. And if only we were yes. to adopt some of the things that they they do. And I'm saying much better, but I'm not saying perfect. Cause that, you know, Oh yeah. There's always we can't say anybody's for perfect. improvement. <laughs> I, I, the reason why I even mentioned that just now, because I just got off the phone with one of my, one of my friends and we were speaking about education in the U S and education elsewhere, anywhere else. Um, pertaining to neurodiversity Mm. and at first I was saying you know education in other countries a lot of places um we have a lot to learn and we can basically follow a lot of their models and he says well they don't have a lot of them are not looking at neurodiversity or really caring about neurodiversity but they still have better education I said that may be true but that does not mean that 
they don't need to improve, you know? Well, another um, thing is, can we talk about Africa for a minute? Because Mm -hmm. it pains me today that people don't understand that it's a, it's a continent, not a country. Um, (laughs) But also that we still hear our politicians and people today compare America to Africa and say Africa is a third world country, which number one is not a country, but number two, we probably have worse infrastructure than 90% of these other countries and continents. And I love that TikTok, there's a lot of people, and even on YouTube, I found during the pandemic, there's people that go to Nigeria and you can have a wonderful vacation experience. You can, and you can meet up with your friends from other countries, you know, like five-star restaurants, five-star hotels, And all the comments are like, why am I stuck in my little apartment in America? And I don't get to do this. Mm. But I just want to say, like, I am so looking forward to your work as an author. Or do you have any other books in the works? Or do you have any ideas flowing? I do. Um, So it's funny because when I, when I decided to write The Beauty of Us All, I was actually in the process of writing another book, Ooh. Um, a book about self-regulation, and I was almost done. <laughs> I had like one more page left, and well, I have a wasn't... question: Are you going to make like a parent uh, companion book for us? <laughs> I was actually thinking about making a companion book for the beauty of us all, Ooh. but everybody's telling me do something for I'm just a kid. You can do like I'm just a mom. Mm. I'm just a teacher. Um, so yeah, that that might come. That might come down the line. My 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 daughter wants me to um do a book called I'm just a kid too. Oh um talking about children of uh the siblings of neurodivergent children. Oh, that's or good. T- yeah. yeah, so um we'll yeah, that they may be coming in the works. We'll see. Um, but for sure there's I, I do have a book that I'm I'm working on. It's almost done. I'm going to be getting it edited soon. Um, but the beauty of us all kind of pushed it out of the way because such, it was such an urgency when that book came out. Um, my, my daughter came home, um, crying because Mm. she saw one of her friends was actually getting bullied Mm. and, she didn't know how to help her friend and, and the kids wouldn't stop bullying her friend and the friend was bullying her. The friend was being bullied simply because of like the way she looked. Mm. Um her the complexion actually, her skin complexion. And because her do- her her friend came from um another she came from Haiti I think. Mm. She was never teased by her about her complexion there. She she was only 8 years old at that time. But over here, it's just very much more diverse over here, right? And she well, there's still so much colorism that I didn't know would stay. I thought I would see it not go away, but I thought I'd see it evolve to the point that we'd know better. Yeah, I mean, you would think that it'll be gone, but yeah, people are still, and I feel as if there's a lot of biases with with certain type of complexions. me being dark skin, I I had a lot of hard time growing up. Um, you know, it was always like you're light skin, you have long hair, you have this, you have that. Mm. Um, so it, it it was hard being. I didn't have short hair, but just my complexion 
if it was just me alone, I would have loved it growing up, you know, and um, I would have been very proud of, you know, the type of, so that's the reason why when it comes to my children, I always say, look at your beautiful skin. And my, my nieces and nephews, they're all brown skin. Look at your beautiful skin. And that's the reason why I wrote The Beauty of Us All. And I'm talking about skin color. I'm not just oh, talking God. about skin color. Um, the book starts out with children who are, um, the mom is talking to the, the daughter about different kinds of fish. Mm. And they're talking about all the beautiful colors of the fish. And well, and people forget about texture, too, because... Yeah. I during the pandemic, I had a lot of friends where their babies or their toddlers, they had to deal with eczema for the first time or psoriasis. And for my daughter, I, cause we deal with that too. Like you try to educate your kids the best you can and be like, Hey, like it's okay to have different skin, different skin color, yeah. different skin yeah. texture. Like, yeah, my mom was bullied severely for just having acne. And when you learn about neurodiversity, that's, a part of <laughs> having a different brain is different connectivity, different issues and hormones comes in that too. And so I'm, yeah, that's so important because in inclusion isn't just about saying like, Oh, Hey, come play with me. It's about recognizing like, Hey, there's somebody, there's something wrong going on over there. Like what can I do to help? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you guys, if you want to look at the book, The Beauty of Us All, it'll help you to be able to answer these questions for your children as well, guys. Yes. And if you're looking to see where to get her books, I'm going to put the links in the show notes. They're currently offered on Amazon. I'm also going to include your website because I think you are such a valuable resource. I'm so glad that you are a speaker. I know that's not a skill that everybody has, so it's so important that you use it and utilize it for advocacy. Is there anything else that you have going on behind the scenes? Um, well, these my well, I'm, I was fortunate that my children's school district actually asked me to be a part of their board for <gasps> diversity, equity, and in, and iniquity. No, sorry, inclusion. Um, for the school district. Yeah, and just to like, yeah, absolutely. So. I am very excited to be able to share about neurodiversity. Specifically, I'm definitely sharing about diversity in general, but neurodiversity is something that many people don't really understand. Even when I uh, I first started to speak about it on Instagram and the question was was towards at my educator friends and many of them never heard of that word mm. before neurodiversity. So bringing it to the school district hopefully um will help children in the classrooms and even in the hallways when they're working with the security guards and the lunch monitors and you know different people who've never actually went to school for education it will help them to be able to be a little more empathetic and just a little more understanding with our children um and I have a question. Yes. Do you feel like it's easier to talk to certain teachers? Because my dyslexic brain thinks that I would probably beeline to the science teacher and be like, hey, do you know about <laughs> biodiversity? Well, let's talk about neurodiversity. <laughs> I love biodiversity. Like, <laughs> I never I... thought about that. I never thought about that until I started. Like, when I wrote this book, 
um, the beauty of us all. And, and it's really all about biodiversity, right? The different fish, the different leaves, different clouds and the, and the snowflakes. And, and then it comes to the brain, right? Yes. Um, and so and even animals I, have different brains. Out, like what? Yeah. <laughs> yes. It, there's so much, there's so much diversity in nature. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't there be diversity within us too? Right. So I love the word biodiversity. I just love biodiversity in general. And now, now I want to go to every science teacher and talk about yes. biodiversity. Be like, listen, you need my book in your classroom. It's going to help connect. <laughs> and, you know, I'll be honest. Like I was one of those students where like, if I did not connect that subject or the concept to my life, I checked out. I was like, I don't need this. Like, I don't understand it. But when I connect those things, I'm like, I love animals. Why wouldn't I love all human brains? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I have to say thank you so much for taking precious time out of your day to meet with us. I am definitely going to put in the show notes. If people want to reach out and buy your book, I'm Just a Kid or The Beauty of Us All, the links are going to be there. But thank you so much for joining us on this journey today, talking about neurodiversity and parenting. But I just want everybody to remember that embracing neurodiversity or learning about neurodiversity, we're not just talking about ourselves or our parents or our children. We're talking about all human beings. So if you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe, share, leave us a review. But until next time, this is the Neuroaffirming Parent signing off.